there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, and you're very welcome to the Your Politics podcast from RTE News. I'm David Murphy, and I'm joined in studio by the newly minted Minister of State, Neil Richmond. Good afternoon, Neil. Good afternoon, David. And we're also joined by our political correspondent, Michal Lahan. Good afternoon, Good Michal. Afternoon. And we're joined on the line by Sandra Hurley, our political reporter, who is up at Farmley. Good afternoon, Sandra. Hi, David. Okay, thanks for joining us. So it's 4pm here on Thursday afternoon and um, we've got a little bit more clarity regarding this ongoing controversy about Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. He's going to be making yet another statement to the Doyle that's going to happen on Tuesday. Michal Han, bring us up to date with the latest. Yeah, Pascal Dunn, who's saying this morning that he does want to make a further statement, that kind of took many people by surprise. There weren't many in the chamber. He was there for his regular job, answering questions as Minister for Public Expenditure. You could see the difficulties from very early on, though, that he was in carrying out those duties in the chamber. Sinn Féin adamant that things could not proceed as normal and there had to be uh, more statements. Uh, so the minister is going to do that, but it's not going to happen today. It's going to happen next Tuesday, sometime in the middle of the afternoon. And this time there will be a questions and answers session. That's something the opposition had been pushing for strongly. So after the minister speaks for 10 minutes, each of the opposition parties and groups will have six minutes to question him. Sandra, you've been having um, a look at Pascal Donoghue's career. It is impressive nationally and internationally. He's one of Fine Gael's key assets and many people in the party are probably going to be thinking, why is all this dragging on and when is Fine Gael going to be able to draw a line underneath it? Yes, I, I think it's remarkable that Pascal Dunhu himself has managed to prolong this controversy, something really that he should have just got over and done with and then moved on. It has dominated the first week of the doll of the return uh, for the revamped coalition, and that's definitely not the start that they wanted. But when you look back at Pascal Dunhu's career, he's had a really gilded run since he got into the doll in 2011. Now, it did take him a while to get into the doll. It was his third attempt in Dublin Central. It was obviously a stronghold for Bertie Ahern, so it was difficult to make that inroad. But once he got there, he was a junior minister two years later and then made it to cabinet in 2014 in transport, tourism and sport. And he's been in cabinet ever since. So he's been in cabinet now for nine years and you, it would be very difficult to think of any sort of personal controversy that Pascal Donoghue has managed to wade into. He rarely puts a foot wrong. He's very careful in his media outings. He's very calm. And what he's also managed to do in recent years is that he's parlayed his job as finance minister for Ireland into a much bigger job, one that uh, really propels him onto a, a more global stage. That, of course, is the presidency of the Eurogroup. Uh, he ends up hobnobbing with people like Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, and I covered an EU Council meeting in Versailles where he was briefing European leaders like Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, and Emmanuel Macron, the French President. So he's mixing it at a very high level while also managing to hold on to his seat in Dublin Central. But of course, that election in 2016 was a difficult one, and uh, that's the one now that has come back to haunt him. So, Neil, this controversy really stems from the fact that Pascal Donoghue um, received a, a, 
political donation by way of a service in the 2016 election. He didn't declare it. It should have been declared. It happened um, unbeknownst to him, but it was then flagged to him uh, a year later. And really, at that point, he acknowledges he should have done something to return an amended declaration to the standards in Public Office Commission. And there's a joke going around about all this in Leinster House today because this story has been rumbling on until Saturday. Today, effectively, Pascal Donoghue uh, has kicked it into next week. And the joke really is, why have a short political crisis for your career when you can have a long one? Yeah, it's certainly different than many others. But in some ways, it's a mark of Pascal. He wants to be thorough. He wants to be transparent. That is what he's done throughout his career and certainly what he'd be known for. And I think all politicians would recognise that, not just from within Fine Gael. Um, he obviously was also parallel to this, and we have to be cognizant that he is cooperating with SIPO. They've received a complaint and they haven't started any sort of investigation as such. We need to be very aware of their work as well. So obviously I sat in the chamber yesterday for that uh, statement. Um, there was a lot of heated exchange yesterday and then again from certain members of the opposition who, to be honest, need to look under their own bonnet a little bit more carefully before they start going into this. And then uh, Pascal obviously needs to get details and go through this again. Were you surprised at the structure of that yesterday? Because it, it was different to what Leo Varadkar put himself forward for in the past. Helen McEntee too, something similar, where there were a lot of questions allowed uh, and it becomes quite a contentious, fractious debate. But at the same time, in the aftermath of it, perhaps there is a sense uh, that a line has been drawn under it. It was very different last night. Yeah, and of course, a lot of this is beyond the minister's control. It's in the gift of the Cairn Corla. He asked for a time under the relevant standing order. He was given it, he gave a statement, and then there was supplementary time from members of the opposition. It was very different to what we saw before, I think, back in the convention centre days, which was quite unbecoming when you had people shouting 100 yards across the room and it, it got quite personalised. Certainly I remember when uh, Helen was up answering questions and again, it comes back to the role of the doll in this. Is it the role of the doll to provide clarity, to provide statements, or is it to be some sort of star chamber or additional court where it most certainly shouldn't be particularly cognizant of the work of SIPO? Isn't there a danger here, Michal, for all of the political parties in a sense that they can't be at 100% sure regarding all of the help that all of their candidates have got in the past. There could be something similar for other political parties. And one thing that's been notable about this crisis for Pascal Donoghue is that the opposition parties haven't called for his resignation. They haven't called for a vote of no confidence. And then his coalition partners, the Greens and Fianna Fáil, are standing behind him. Yeah, they definitely are standing behind him. And you could see the Taoiseach today saying that he had no great appetite for a major outlining of detail within the Dáil Chamber talking about the importance of SIPO. I mean, there are people within his own party who point out that Barry Cowan was embroiled in a controversy too, was involved in a GSOC investigation and was trying to leave it to, to GSOC to deal with it. I suppose you could say Pascal Dunhu has addressed the matter in the chamber, so there's a slight difference there. But that irony won't be lost on some within Fianna Fáil. Nonetheless, if the parties do have reservations about their own returns, and I'd say they do, you don't sense that they're going to let that hold them back in the days ahead. And judging by what happened today and Pierce Doherty's words at the close of the order of business when he spoke about a minister now involved in an almighty controversy and in big trouble, I think that's illustrative of the kind of momentum that's building within this. And any controversy that lingers, and this is going to linger for another few days, does become hazardous for the person involved, even if 
by its very nature, it doesn't seem comparable with much bigger controversies in the past. That doesn't really matter if major amendments or major changes have to be made to what Pascal Donoghue has already said. Sandra, in terms of Pascal Donoghue's career, one thing that's notable about it is the fact he's been able to avoid almost at every juncture political controversies of this kind. And then this one comes along and in terms of monetary value, it's relatively small. It's roughly a thousand euro. And bear in mind, uh, decades ago, we had issues whereby a former Taoiseach actually received a cheque for 1.1 million euro, Charles Hawhey, from Ben Dunn. So this controversy would actually, in monetary terms, be very small. But from Pascal Donoghue's point of view, he's actually made it into a lingering corrosive issue now that it's going into a second week. Yes, I would agree that what is really under the spotlight now politically also is Pascal Donoghue's handling of this when it all came to light. If he had simply dealt with all the detailed questions that were put, then I think this controversy could have been put to bed because when you take a step back and look at what's involved here and apply some perspective, as Michal Martin was urging today, it is at the lower scale of political transgressions. Um, that said, though, there are some curiosities. The figures themselves are a little curious that Pascal Donoghue has come up with. Um, and it's perhaps a little convenient that under all the individual strands of political types of donations, all the amounts quoted by him come under the threshold. So he says that there there isn't any particular issue here. But no, it is not. It shouldn't be a resigning matter. The opposition aren't calling for his head, but the opposition are certainly playing this for maximum damage and they're wringing as much uh, time out of this as possible. And there's a lot of outrage, I suppose, being feigned in the chamber over this. Neil, has Pascal Donoghue bungled all of this? No, I don't think so. And I think it's you can look at this two ways. You can look at Pascal being as thorough and as transparent, and he wants to make sure he can give the most accurate information. As you said at the start, a lot of this happened unbeknownst to Pascal, so he needs to get clarity and information that he doesn't know. But it's interesting when Sandra refers to the outrage being feigned. It is. Like, I've never seen so many, so much constructed outrage as I saw uh, this morning from here, or this morning in the chamber from Pierre Starty. And in the same time, when it's put back to them, we get the same heckle and dismissive comments when there's very real questions about a donation. But is that not the way the the Doyle works? Like, you try to hold people to account, put them under a bit of pressure? Absolutely, hold people to account. But the, the moral outrage and you know, the sort of histrionics that were being chased um, this morning was certainly something that I just kind of said, people looking in at that can understand that there are very technical issues at play and they do need clarity and Pascal needs to provide that clarity and corrections need to be made. But the sort of level of outrage from a party who also have serious answer, questions to answer in themselves, I think that can play thin pretty quickly. And certainly from our point of view, we want to give Pascal the space to clarify, to correct any things that he already has had to correct and he's right to do it. Um, but ultimately, we think this is an issue that he is handling correctly and properly. It's dangerous territory, though, Neil. I mean, politically, you can sense it around here. This, from a government perspective and from a very senior political figure in here, has now suddenly, on an issue that may not look massive, mm. is walking a very, very dangerous path. For sure, but everything can be dangerous territory when it comes into matters like this. And we are aware of that. Um, and I think that's why it requires the absolute new fullness and uh, cooperation from Minister Donoghue, which we saw last night and which we'll see again next week. Do you think the publication of the amended statement that he made to SIPA, that some people have called for the publication of that, if he were to do that, would that be helpful? I don't necessarily know. I think what would be 
the most helpful thing you can do is repeat what he did yesterday and give a very thorough and clear statement to the Dáil. And of course, he's been asked to engage in a question-answer session. And I have no doubt that we'll see, as you call it, the proverbial line drawn on under it next week. Sandra, before you leave us, because I know you've got a busy press conference to go to shortly, you're up in Farmley. Can you just tell us why you're there and what's going on today? Yes, well, they're having the uh, holding the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference here today. So you've got a British ministerial delegation led by the Northern Irish Secretary, Chris Eaton-Harris. Also an Irish government delegation led by the Thonistan Minister for Foreign Affairs, Micheál Martin. Also Eamon Ryan will be here. And they've been having discussions over the last couple of hours. There's going to be a news conference in a little while. But I think uh, Chris Eaton-Harris kind of stole the headline earlier today when he confirmed what many expected, which was that when the deadline for forming a power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland, when that runs out at midnight tonight, he will not be going straight away to call an election. He's going to wait more time to consider all the issues. It's very clear that some progress has been made in the talks on the Northern Irish protocols, so the British government seem... Uh, Clearly, they want to uh, allow those to continue. Certainly, the hope politically would be that if a deal can be done on the protocol, there might be a way for the DUP then to back down from its position of uh, boycotting the formation of an executive. And if they were to reverse that position, then, of course, an election could be avoided, which is probably the solution that everybody would want in the long run. But uh, It's going to take, I think, a lot of politicking to get to that point because the DUP have kind of backed themselves into a corner and they're going to have to find a way to climb out of that while saving face in some sort of way. Sandra, thanks very much for joining us. Um, We'll let you get on to your press conference now in Farmley. And uh, Neil Richmond, you've been closely watching the situation in the north and indeed for Fine Gael, you've been a fairly high profile commentator on the Brexit situation. What exactly is the government strategy and all of this because the fear is that while the perhaps the EU and the UK could reach a deal that uh, the DUP would never agree to it. Well that's always the fear and that's been the consistent trend over the last six years is that the DUP will demand 10 things, get all 10 of them and then say it's not enough. And there's been huge politics at play. And we saw in the run-up to the Assembly election last May, we saw the boycotting of the North-South institutions and then obviously the boycotting of the Assembly as it is. Um, The Irish government has a really important role to play in this as they have uh, since the Brexit referendum or actually before the Brexit referendum took place in terms of maintaining the EU line, maintaining the relevance of this to the European Union because there's a lot happening in Europe. Um, Marcel Sekovic deals with the protocol as part of his job as opposed to Michel Barnier who solely dealt with Brexit negotiations negotiations previously and we've seen that pay off in terms of the EU has maintained uh, not just the attention but they provided serious clear solutions to the issues of medicine importation last year their suite of measures to reduce checks uh, September a year ago all those things and I fundamentally do believe after last week's agreement in terms of data sharing, that there is a deal to be had between the British government and the European Commission prior to the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. But then the tricky thing is getting that accepted by all the parties in the North. And I think if we listen to the language of Sir Geoffrey Donaldson over the weekend, I think the DUP, they have it within themselves to prepare prepare an element of an off-ramp that will allow them accept this, albeit begrudgingly, but most people in Northern Ireland say they accept Brexit begrudgingly in the first place. And then, more importantly, get an executive back up and running because the people in Northern Ireland, who are far more important than the politicians, have really suffered without that. Some people, and indeed Sinn Féin, say that really the DUP, no matter what, they actually don't want to go into an administration led by Sinn Féin and they'll come up with any excuse possible to avoid that prospect. 
and that's a fair claim, but it is a claim and we won't see that until the way is cleared to allow that to happen. We won't see definition on this. It's interesting, the DUP have these seven so-called tests for any deal. The only way to solve those seven tests would actually be for the UK to rejoin the EU. So this is the the contradiction that they've contained themselves and they always have to deal with a really horrible element within loyalism who are sniping from the sidelines. They organised those vicious anti-protocol rallies about a year ago where they put up effigies of of Leo Radcar and Simon Coveney. So that's all in the the contention. But I do think, and it is a structure, I do think we can have an executive led by a Sinn Féin First Minister and a DUP Deputy First Minister and I think we can have it this year. Michal, there's a lot of things that could go right for the government in terms of all of this. You're looking at the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, potentially this deal between the UK and the EU, the protocol issue solved, then the Assembly coming back up and running, and then this potential for Joe Biden to enter the mix. Yeah, that that would be a a summer that would work, a spring summer that would work for the government. Um, I think... There does seem to be renewed sense of optimism around in relation to getting the executive up and running and getting a deal around the protocol. But as was Neil mentioning the DUP, there's also the ERG element in that as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I wouldn't overstate that, Michal. I, I was in London before Christmas with the European Affairs Commission and we, we met one of the le- leading lights of the ERG, David Jones. And obviously myself and Brendan Helen had a fairly decent row with them. But the ERG aren't what they were four or five years ago. When it's always good to have a decent row though, isn't it really? But that's how you get progress sometimes. But the ERG that bedeviled Theresa May, it's not the force it was. It isn't the 48, 52 MPs. It's about 13 now. And the two most important ERG members are now Chris Heaton-Harris, or where the formerly most important ERG members were Chris Heaton-Harris and Steve Baker, who are the very ministers who need to put this deal through. So I think that is one way of placating is one term, but making uh, the pathway a lot clearer to this. So I'd be, once upon a time, I'd be very fearful of the ERG, that group who accepted a deal in their supposed star chamber. Um, but they're not the force they once were, certainly not threatening. And the other thing is, in terms of a sheer numbers game, is the British Labour Party, um, led by John Kyle, their shadow secretary, has said they will back any deal on the protocol um, so Rishi Sunak does have that in his back pocket as well. So Rishi Sunak is a guy who's um, got a new job. Obviously, he's now um, prime minister in the UK. The other person who's got a new job is you, Neil. Um, so you are now minister for state at the Department of Enterprise. And there are a couple of things in your job which are quite interesting. One of them is the reform of the sick pay mechanism. There's been some criticism of this in the past. Can you just explain for us exactly what is the status quo and what's going to happen? So since the 1st of January, the six pay, the, the Act has been enacted and we now have a situation where everyone's entitled to three days paid sick leave. That's in law for the first time and it's a really big progressive um, measure because a lot of people would have been fearful that if they had to go out sick, they wouldn't get paid. It's um, up to 70% of your gross earnings capped at €110 Euro per day. Um, that's the start of it. But the role that falls to me now, previously done by Damien, of course, is to bring that on because we want to move that over the next three years to five days, seven days, and then 10 days. Um, I think it's really important for workers, but also it's really important for employers because we need to have a situation that employees are comfortable at work, that they're not coming into work where they are not just sick and we think about all the COVID days and we were talked about staying away, but they can be as productive as possible after properly uh, recovering. The other area where you've got quite a lot of work to do is in terms of making sure the work permit system goes smoothly. And that is particularly important in terms of making sure we've the supply of essential workers 
in the Irish economy. Now, a lot of employers are saying actually the skills shortage is the biggest crisis they face, even bigger than the uh, cost of living, cost of energy. How are you going to make that work? Well, we're in a situation, in some ways a fortunate situation, where we're edging towards effective full employment. We have the highest uh, percentage of people employed um, for over 20 years, which is great, but it presents really clear difficulties, particularly post-COVID when so many people who had come from abroad to work here decided to go home. So the waiting times, and this is something as a backbench TDI was constantly raising, the waiting times have been reduced steadfastly. Fastly, they quadrupled the workforce, dealing this critical skills. The turnaround for a work permit application is now a week. Um, average is two weeks. That's come down massively over the last six months to a year. Um, there is also now looking at more medium term, a bit of ref- reform to combine that, streamline the system, to combine it with the immigration system, which obviously isn't my purview, but it comes under justice because we need talent in this country. We need um, highly skilled uh, talent in every sector. Um, and that's something then we've obviously changed the critical skills list to make sure that more people can come under that uh, list as well and more sectors of the economy. Now, Neil Richmond, you got this new job as Minister um, of at the Department of Enterprise because Damien English um, had to resign. And that's it's the second big Fine Gael issue where we've seen a minister under pressure in effectively a week or so. What exactly is going on with Fine Gael, people might ask themselves? I think they're two very different issues, um, to be fair. And I think Damien... In a, you know, a, a mistake was made quite clearly. Um, he submitted a form incorrectly and he resigned fairly rapidly um, when it was brought to light. Um, very disappointing, particularly Damien, as has been said many times, an extremely popular on a personal level, but he was a very good minister for quite a period of time. Um, so therefore, it fell to me um, to very graciously step into the breach. A um, bit of a surprise. And now we have a situation where there are a number of questions that uh, Pascal Dunne has to respond to. Again, very different situations this is part of politics. It's something that hangs over everyone who's ever sought election and filled in a SIPA form and everything else. Do you think there's any possibility of Pascal Donoghue resigning over this? No, I don't think so. And I don't think it merits it. I think um, certainly what we've seen to late, light, and Michal's been quite clear, no one's called for a resignation, is the actions that Pascal has done in terms of correcting his um, return is something that politicians across the spectrum do regularly because things come to light, things come to light after an election. Anyone who's ever fought an election campaign knows that there are many fraught things and it takes a while to get everything in order. And if someone tells you quite genuinely, I'll put up your posters and you think it's on a voluntary contribution, it's only then that you have to correct when it's brought to your attention that it was done otherwise. Michal, do you think Fine Gael and Fine Gael figures are getting a little bit rattled by all of this? Yeah, I think the fact that it's it's moving to another week, I think the fact that there wasn't that degree of separation yesterday from the type of um, debate you'd expect to see in the Dáil and that the minister usually can leap free to a certain extent off the back of it. The fact that that didn't happen, the fact that the second statement isn't happening today, I mean, at one level, it should be very easy given that the SIPA return has been amended now, uh, that it should be easy to answer all the questions. So why the need uh, to take more time to share information that Pascal Duna said he's trying to make sure is as accurate as possible? Um, is there scope to allow for further changes for the minister? Maybe there is, but I think that would put a lot of pressure upon him. On just on a lighter note, Neil, you are part of the Oireachtas rugby team. 
Um, uh, you've got some fixtures coming up, am I right? Yeah, um, I'm very grateful that I'm no longer the captain. Uh, now that I'm Minister, Senator John McGatton from Dundalk Rugby Club has taken over that. Uh, we have three fixtures this year, first year since pre-COVID fulfilled. Um, we play the French in a couple of weeks. We actually travelled to Scotland, which unfortunately there was a tragedy in our match last year, one of these terrible sudden cardiac systems that has happened, very healthy young people. Um, so that'll be in, in March and then we host the English again. Um, I note that James Cleverly played for the British team on a number of occasions, um, amongst others, so perhaps myself and himself can go toe-to-toe in a scrum as well. Jim O'Callaghan is a member of that team as well, isn't he? Jim O'Callaghan, well, Jim O'Callaghan's a bit good for the team. Jim obviously was, um, <laughs> unlike... People like me who barely got on Wesley's third 15, Jim obviously played for Ireland Day and Leinster. He's certainly part of it. Um, Just his, his recent point about guard of fitness levels being too strict, how would they compare with the parliamentary par- rugby team's fitness levels? You'd be surprised. You've got some real athletes there. We're hoping Alan Dillon of numerous All-Stars will be making his debut this year. Uh, Jim is slightly older than me, but it could easily beat me in any race and he's still fit as a fiddle uh, and many others. And more importantly, there's quite a number of staff in the Rockless who play, who are uh, very keen on not just the, the off-pitch but the on-pitch fitness as well. Where will Alan Dillon play? Full-back or winger? Or? I really hope he plays out half a footballer for his ability. Hmm. Are there any rugby lessons you can bring to politics? Um, certainly patience. Patience is more important in rugby than you think. It's a fast, hectic game but you need to know um, when to when to speak, when to act and that's certainly something that and then Everything goes with teamwork is the usual cliche that everyone will roll out. Are there any other big names from the Oireachtas we know who are on the team? Well, the Taoiseach, he doesn't get much bigger than that. He's played in the second row as Taoiseach a number of times. I took over as captain from Simon Coveney. Um, in previous days, Bar- uh, Brian Cowan would have played. Um, in terms of current, Angus O'Snodig would have played in the front row, Fintan Warfield. So it is very much cross-party and it's, it's welcomed people from all parties and obviously men and women as well. Okay, well, look, good, good luck on the rugby field and um, good luck when in the new ministry. Neil Richmond, Minister of State, the Department of Enterprise, thanks very much for joining us on the Europe Politics podcast. Thanks also to Michal Lahan, who was here in studio, and Sandra Hurley, who was up at Farmley at the Irish British Intergovernmental Conference press conference that's taking place this afternoon. If you enjoyed the Europolitics podcast, please subscribe and leave a review from me, David Murphy. We'll talk to you again this time next week. Thank you.